Hello and welcome to the Finomize podcast. I'm Carl Hazley, the VP of Content at Finomize. For this special episode, we'll revisit a conversation I had as part of the Modern Investor Summit 2023, which took place online and in person in early December. Now, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jay Jacobs, the US Head of Thematics and Active Equity ETFs at iShares by BlackRock, to delve into megaforces of the next decade. In his role, Jay is responsible for the research and development of the Megaforces suite, driving commercialization of these products, as well as managing product sales and marketing for the Megaforces franchise. Jay is also responsible for BlackRock's active equity, alternatives, and international ETF suites. So let's get to it. Our discussion with Jay Jacobs from iShares by BlackRock. Jay, thank you for being here. Welcome. How are you doing? Thanks, Carl. Very excited to be here. Let's dive in. So, Jay, I guess, first question, what defines a megatrend? How do you define if they're investment worthy and not just a passing market fad? Yeah, look, this is not the business of pulling out a crystal ball and trying to predict the future. What we are looking at are what are the major, powerful structural trends that are disrupting the economy and society that are already underway, but are starting to really see an acceleration. We want to start hitting that J curve with these structural trends early so that we can identify the best investment opportunities for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So we've done a lot of work within BlackRock to understand what exactly are those powerful mega forces that are reshaping the world around us. And we have come up with five in our new mega forces framework, which we just released this year in June. Uh, it is looking at AI, which shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, this has been completely a game changer over the last year and for many years to come. It's looking at things like demographics and aging populations. It's the transition to a net zero economy. It is the future of finance, and it is geopolitical fragmentation. Those are our five mega forces that we think are really reshaping the global economy. Now, I think what's interesting about this is we did this same exercise in 2016, seven years ago. And the world has already changed so much from COVID to tariffs and Brexit and all these different pieces that are kind of reshaping the global economy and society that just seven years later, we felt like we already had to rework our framework to think about what the world looks like for the next several years. That's really interesting. And I think we're going to get into the specific mega forces a little bit later on. But I guess and you've alluded to this already, but you know there have been instances in the past where what might have been a mega force or a mega trend didn't quite translate into you know either attractive shareholder returns or in, indeed into the theme that you expected it to be. So I guess, how do you think about sidestepping those? And you know, when you refreshed the work in June, what did you look for? What were the indicators that gave you confidence that the trends, the forces are going to endure over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, you know, on one hand, it's a really research-driven process. You know, we worked with the BlackRock Investment Institute to look deeply into these structural forces and to get a lot of confidence and a lot of research backing up why these five mega forces are so powerful. But in some sense, they should be relatively intuitive. Again, this is not a crystal ball exercise. None of the five mega forces I just mentioned should be terribly surprising to anybody. We're already seeing and feeling these things in our everyday lives. I'm sure many listeners have played with ChatGPT. Maybe many listeners drive an electric vehicle in the transition to net zero. Maybe many listeners have aging parents and are thinking about what it means that you know a growing proportion of our society is over the age of 65. These themes are happening. Uh, they're happening all around us. We can get the data to back them up so that we're very confident that these are structural trends. But again, these should not be terribly surprising to people. They are happening in our everyday lives. 
Fantastic. On the one hand, these are massive themes with a lot going on. On the other hand, you can maybe simplify them to one of many very famous Buffett quotes where, you know, I like Coke, tastes good. I think other people will like Coke. Maybe Coke's an interesting company, but on a massive, massive scale. Okay, so you've identified those five themes. You've bought into the opportunity. They're intuitive. They're backed up by the research. Now, you head up US thematics and active equity ETFs for iShares by BlackRock. So I have to ask, what are the advantages of taking a basket or portfolio approach via an ETF to pursue these trends and themes as opposed to a single stock approach? So I think there's two main advantages. The first is uh, about diversification. So I think many people, when you talk about artificial intelligence or aging populations and some you know, very powerful pharmaceutical drugs that are coming out to treat advanced age-related diseases, maybe they can come up with one company, two company, three companies in each of those themes. I'm sure this year with the focus on AI, many people can name the Magnificent Seven and go seven names deep in the AI space right now. But there's actually 120 companies in AI that we've identified around the world that are really leading in this next phase of artificial intelligence. So one piece is don't just go for that well-known name. Don't just go for the obvious names. Really diversify your bets and try to bet on the rising tide lifting all ships, not just on a couple concentrated names. The second piece of it, though, is in an ETF, you can really access the entire ecosystem of a theme. And maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more as we dig into AI. But AI is a really multifaceted theme. It is not just about the platforms that are developing AI platforms going forward. It's not just about GPU makers that are making the hardware for AI. There are a lot of different companies involved in the entire value chain. And by accessing an ETF, you can really get exposure to that entire value chain. So, and again, it's kind of a diversification story, but it's not just diversifying across individual stocks. It's diversifying across that value chain to make sure you're participating in all of the opportunity that a theme presents. Fantastic. Ray Dalio was just talking about the benefits of diversification, so I'm sure he would agree with you as well. And maybe just switching gears slightly and thinking a little bit from a product approach, because if I think about everybody watching and listening to us, they're thinking about, right, well, I'm going to invest in these trends and themes. I'd want to understand a little bit about how, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. So you've identified the trends, the themes, the, in the case of AI, 120 companies. What drives the decision to actually create that exchange traded fund? Is it purely research driven? Do you have people banging down your doors saying, hey, give me an AI ETF, for instance? How do you decide what to do and what not to do? It's a little bit of both. I would say it starts with research. But really, I think what we have gotten very good at at iShares is listening to our clients and listening to end investors. So, you know, if you go back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, before ETFs had really had the, you know, incredible rise they've had over the last decade, getting thematic exposure was really difficult. People had to research their own stocks. They had to purchase these individual stocks. They had to rebalance those exposures. They probably missed a big portion of the opportunity especially because many people cannot invest internationally. They can really only invest in their home market for, for individual stocks. So ETFs have really provided so much access and diversification to these themes by being able to package together dozens of companies that are related to a specific theme. So the decision for us is, do we believe in the theme? Is there a research process behind it to, make a, to give us a lot of confidence that this theme is really a structural trend? And is this an exposure that our clients are looking for? If it's not, we don't want to bring it out in an ETF. This should really be helping solve people's problems of, I like the theme, I want exposure to it in my portfolio, I don't have a lot of exposure to it already, how can this ETF be really complementary? 
That sounds good. So before we dive into the meat around this delicious meal of the mega forces themselves, I just want to maybe set the scene a little bit in terms of the macro. So obviously, the macro landscape is tougher than it has been in recent years. Geopolitical landscape is more volatile and uncertain. How does that change what investors should be looking for in terms of thinking about long-term themes? And does that change what investors should be looking for? Carl, I'll, I'll just say that's the first time I've heard thematic investing referred to as a delicious meal, and I, I like that. <laughs> I Look, the, the macro environment has been really challenged over the last year. And I think, you know, we look back at 2023, I think many investors would be surprised to see how well things like the S&P 500 have done this year, considering we've been in an environment of heightened geopolitical risk uh, with rising interest rates. Um, you know, this year in a lot of ways surprised people, but it was also a reminder that you can't just sit on the sidelines. When yields are over 5%, it's really compelling for investors to just keep their money in cash and collect 5 plus percent and holding cash in a bank account or in a money market fund. We see $6 trillion in the United States being held in cash right now, which is a record high. You couple that with high interest rates with this really uncertain economic outlook, and it's probably why people are just comfortable sitting in cash. But again, the S&P 500 ended up you know, significantly this year, given uh, things like AI really driving returns. So we believe sitting in cash, especially for younger investors with a long-term time horizon, is not going to help people achieve their ultimate goal of having a secure retirement. You need that equity exposure to grow your portfolio over and compound that over several decades. Now, Given the difficult economic environment, we believe people have to get really precise about what exposure they are getting in the equity markets. It's not just an on-off decision. It's not saying I want equities or I don't want equities. This year and beyond, it's going to be what portion of the market has the best growth opportunities for the next several decades. Of course, that is extremely aligned with our mega forces framework, which is really looking at the areas of the economy, which are likely to see outsized growth over the next decade and beyond. So that is why we think that in this difficult macro environment, thematic investing should really be top of investors' minds as they approach trying to find opportunities in 2024. And frankly, if you can tap into some of that $6 trillion on the sidelines, then not only are you doing a good job for those investors, hopefully, um, obviously, iShares will be doing some good business too. And I guess let's dive into those megatrends. 2023 will go down on record as the year of AI. So let's start to unpack the themes driving those 120-odd companies you mentioned. I would argue that phase one of the AI play has probably happened. The easy money has been made. Do you agree with that? And if so, what does phase two look like? How do we identify winners? And more specifically, how have you identified the winners? So let's zoom back a little bit because I don't want people to think AI is just chasing a fad and, and looking back at 2023 and saying, uh, you know, oh, look, this was the year of AI. Everyone should go into AI because that's really not what has happened here. AI has been a slow moving process for really the better part of the last 75 years. The concept of AI was really popularized in 1950 with the Turing test. If anyone's seen the movie The Imitation Game, that's basically what it's all about. But it was the idea that at some point, computers would get smart enough that it would be difficult to determine whether you were having a conversation with a computer or a human. We fast forward to 2011, many people start interacting with Siri on their iPhones, and you start to see AI really getting into our everyday lives, but in a relatively small way, maybe to set a timer as you're cooking something in the kitchen. But ChatGPT coming out at the end of 2022 was really the iPhone moment for AI. 100 million people signed up for ChatGPT in the first two months. That is the fastest growing platform we had ever seen at the time. 
vastly growing faster than things like Snapchat and Instagram, you know, other major platforms that we all uh, know and maybe use on a daily basis. And what it showed is that AI as a product has a really powerful implication. It was really, I would, if I look back at 2023, I would say this is the year of the proof of concept that AI is extremely powerful, but it wasn't a year of commercialization. You didn't see these AI companies suddenly generating billions and billions of, of dollars on this product. That's what 2024 and beyond is going to be about. We know the product works, but if you are an enterprise and you're trying to figure out how do I use this AI software? How do I plug it into work streams to reduce costs? How do I turn my product into something that's AI enabled so that it can be a better product uh, serving more people in more ways? That takes a little bit of time to integrate that into these businesses. But ultimately, that's what's going to turn this into a leading industry going forward is that enterprise level adoption. But a few examples, you know, you look right now at travel companies uh, online, it's still a pretty manual process of looking for the right flights, looking for the right hotels that are in your budget, that have availability, trying to reserve a restaurant on the right nights. All of that can be handled by AI. Many travel companies are recognizing that. Actually, the tip of the spear of AI adoption in many ways is happening in the travel space because so many companies realize if you'd rather just type in I want to go to Cancun for seven days and here's my budget, build me an itinerary. That is something that AI can do very well today. So we're starting to see that being integrated into products that ultimately will impact our daily lives. But until that happens at a grand scale, we're really still at that proof of concept stage of AI. But this is really the tipping point, 2024 and beyond. I think we will start to see AI chatbots, AI integrated into products, companies coming out in their earnings, talking about how much money they saved by implementing AI. All of that is coming in 2024. Absolutely. I think just as an example, to add on to your example, I went to visit South Africa earlier in the year, and I had a number of days in a couple of cities, told ChatGPT exactly where I'd be and when, and I said, hey, I want to do all the stuff, make me an itinerary. And that's what we followed. And it worked. It worked a dream. And maybe just to one quick follow-up on just how that ETF is structured. So you talked about the productization, the commercialization of AI. Are the companies, by and large, in the ETF ones that you expect to be beneficiaries and winners there in terms of providing the product? Or is it a mix of the providers and potential beneficiaries, maybe the travel companies that figure it out and so on? Yeah, so we're really looking at the full value chain of AI. And so if we take a step back and look at 2023, you see that really only a handful of companies benefited from 2023 being the year that AI kind of burst onto the stage, right? You have the Magnificent Seven, you have a lot of these platform mega cap tech names that experienced massive share price appreciation. And you have, um, you know, really specifically the makers of GPU semiconductors that are powering these really powerful AI engines. Now, Those companies are very well positioned in AI. I don't want to take anything away from those companies, but I would suggest that there are many more companies beyond that that are actually really well suited, very well positioned to benefit from the rise of AI that just haven't really captured the market's attention yet. So a couple areas that we're looking at is um, first in the semiconductor space, there's been this huge focus on GPUs. These are graphics processing units. These are literally the most powerful semiconductors in the world today. But as AI gets more advanced and you see more adoption, there will be a focus on how do we do this efficiently? How do we do this with more off-the-shelf semiconductors as well? Rather, you don't always have to buy the you know the Rolls-Royce semiconductor. Can you buy the steady, dependable Toyota Camry uh, semiconductor as well? And that's where a lot of these CPUs, central processing units, are going to come in. So we see a big surge in demand for more generic off-the-shelf semiconductors in the rise of AI. 
the second is if you look at digital infrastructure, um, AI kind of mysteriously happens in the cloud somewhere and you type in, write me a poem about investing and you get it back in 20 seconds. But that actually has to physically happen somewhere. And that is in data centers that are secure, uh, that have cooling, that have um, uh, networking connectivity, uh, that have very well locate uh, good locations next to major cities so that you have very uh, low latency. So the digital infrastructure we see is being very well positioned in AI as well. And then further, I would really look at the applications that are going to be implementing AI. We talked a little bit about travel companies, but uh, to make a little bit of, a, of an analogy here, uh, if you look at 4G, which is really that technology that made cell phones so much more powerful, you, yeah, so they could access the internet. So many companies were built because 4G was available. Think about all the e-commerce shopping we do on our phones seamlessly. That is because of 4G. If you look at social media, how quick and easy it is to take a photo and upload it to you know your social media platform of choice, that's because of 4G. So really entire industries were created or, or, or completely recreated because of the advent of 4G. We see AI having a similar impact. It is going to be the applications that are built using AI uh, or rebuilt using AI that are going to see massive economic benefits. So when we look at any type of uh, thematic exposure to AI, we don't just want to look at the Magnificent Seven. Yes, we want them. They're very well positioned. But we want to look at that entire ecosystem, the semiconductors, the digital infrastructure, the application developers on top of AI that really will benefit from this mega force. I already thought I was excited about AI, but you've taken it to another le another level for sure, especially with the digital infrastructure piece. That's not one I'd spent a lot of time on. And I guess quite a neat segue into one of the other mega forces is medical innovation, which has been you know, supercharged by AI in part, at least. And I guess there are a few factors. It probably ties into demographics as well. So can you maybe spend a little bit of time just talking about what makes medical innovation particularly attractive right now? Well, there's, uh, there's the technology side of it, which we can go into a little bit. But I actually think that there's more of a societal and demographic side to it, which is there are populations around the world that are aging, that are getting older. We're seeing declining birth rates and extending lifespans, which means you have a society that just has more seniors in it, which is terrific, like live long and prosper. Um, however, that is going to create different demands on the economy than we've seen in the past. Uh, to put some numbers behind it, in the United States, in 2024, you will see more people over the age of 64 than under the age of 15 for the first time. If we go back 100 years, there were six times as many people under the age of 15 than over the age of 65. So this is a landscape. This is a massive shift of the landscape demographically. And then you have to look at how do 65-year-olds, uh, what, what are the demands of 65 and older folks have uh, on the economy? And a lot of it comes back to healthcare. You look at the instances of Alzheimer's. Uh, one in nine people over the age of 65 have Alzheimer's. Uh, if you live to be over 85, there's a one in three chance uh, that you have that debilitating disease. Uh, you look at things like diabetes. You look at heart disease, other diseases that predominantly impact people over the age of 65. So you really have to start looking at the healthcare system and understand where is there going to be growing demand for certain products and services, pharmaceuticals, that is going to serve that aging population. Now, that's the societal demographic side of things. On the other hand, we want to look at the technology and where we're seeing these really fantastic advancements. So just in the last year, we really had one of the first breakthroughs in Alzheimer's drugs that we've seen in the last 20 years. So the technology is getting things to be better, faster, uh, cheaper in some ways to develop new drugs. Uh, and a lot of that is thanks to AI. 
Uh, a lot of pharmaceutical development has to do with um, processing large amounts of data around patients, around drug compounds, uh, really trying to predict the success of a drug before you go into trials. There are estimates out there that by using AI effectively, uh, they can reduce the cost and time to market of drugs by 25 to 50%. And the societal impact of that could be huge. That could allow us to live longer, to live better lives, to potentially drive down the costs of healthcare as well. Um, so we're really excited about AI being introduced into the medical system. That's really exciting. I think all it takes is for, you know, one or two more Ozempic-like solutions for things like Alzheimer's and then, you know, our life expectancy goes up and beyond even further. And beyond that, there'll be massive consumption habit changes. The old patterns won't be the new patterns. Maybe to switch into another megaforce, globalization. Now, let's rewind seven years. The world coming together was a huge driver of investment opportunity. And since then, we're probably, it's fair to say, countries are moving further apart. And that, it, that in itself has created a new megaforce. Do you want to maybe explain a little bit about how that's happening and how you can invest in what feels like disruption and dislocation rather than harmony? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, if you really look at the end of World War II through the global financial crisis, globalization was a one-way trend. You saw the integration of supply chains. You saw the movement of people through easy and cheap travel. Uh, you saw the integration of information through the internet. You saw globally integrated financial systems. Um, but then you had a series of events that really started to challenge that. Starting with the global financial crisis, people started to question, you know, do we really want extremely integrated, uh, you know, banks and financial systems? Uh, we saw trade tariffs, we saw Brexit, and really you started to ask the question of, should we have integrated supply chains? Then you have COVID, which really put, um, you know, the emphasis on how much can you depend on globally integrated supply chains to develop the, uh, and to make the products that you need on a given basis. So you had several events in a row from 2008 to 2016 to 2020 that really challenged the notion of globalization. And now we are seeing really the implications of that. Um, here in the United States, government policy has completely changed to focus on building the critical industries of the future here in the US rather than outsourcing that. The, infl uh, the, infrastructure, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has really focused on building electric vehicles and clean energy in the United States. The Chips and Science Act, we were talking about semiconductors earlier. The Chips and Science Act is all about building semiconductors in the United States going forward. The, inf uh, the uh, Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, a trillion dollar bill to rebuild infrastructure in the United States to make it more competitive. All of that is to say that the United States and many countries are doing their own versions of this, are saying, we need to build the critical industries here. Now, the challenge of that, especially in the United States, is we have very low unemployment. So you look at the manufacturing sector, unemployment is under 3%. So there's not a lot of trained people who are ready to step into those jobs. We go back to aging populations. While we uh, added about 20 million people to the workforce over the last 10 years in the United States, we're only going to add about 5 million people over the next 10 years. That presents challenges when you're trying to be the leaders in electric vehicles and AI and semiconductors and all these different industries. And so while we want to lead and build and reshore a lot of these manufacturing activities, the reality is we can't, and we have to depend on trade partners. And so within the US, you're seeing new partners emerging uh, that are really going to be um, kind of those, those friend-shoring opportunities going forward. Uh, you look at Mexico, for example. Mexico is the number one trade partner of the United States now. That was not always the case. 
Uh, it's clear that the proximity of Mexico, the lower costs of labor in Mexico, uh, the free trade agreements with Mexico have really influenced that relationship. Um, but if you look further overseas, uh, India uh, is stepping up to really be a major trade partner of the United States as well. Large population, young demographics, well-trained. Um, you're starting to see that tariffs that existed between the United States and India are being rolled back and, and um, eliminated, and in some cases eliminated entirely. So the way that the world is going to be integrated going forward, I think is going to look very different than it has over the last uh, 50 or 60 years or so. And that creates these pockets of opportunity in the sectors that the United States is investing in domestically, as well as in some of the international countries that are really positioned to benefit from this new uh, globalization rewired, as we call it. I think sitting in the UK, it's not lost on me how important being able to trade freely with your nearest partner is. So the US and Mexico makes a lot of sense. One thing you touched on, and we're coming up on time, so I'm going to be very quick here, is you talked about the global financial crisis potentially being a catalyst for rewiring globalization. What's the future of finance? Tell me as quickly as you can, because obviously I, I, I want to squeeze it in before we've got to wrap. The future of finance is, is many things. You know, in one way, it's looking at the role that banks play in the financial system going forward. In a lot of ways, when you look at lending, when you look at equity raising, a lot of that is being brought into the private markets instead of through banks. So that's one implication. I think we have to look at the investor of the future, which is increasingly younger, digitally enabled, uh, that wants to access the financial markets in a different way. And I think you have to look at uh, other types of investments. We've seen the rise of digital assets in the last few years. We've seen the rise of alternative investing. And so really, the capital markets are expanding to include more types of investments and frankly, include a lot more investors in that process. So the future of finance, I think, is uh, frankly, a really bright spot for the economy that there will be more financial inclusion going forward and more choices for investors. That is exciting for both for BlackRock and for Finimize. And maybe just as a very last question. What piece of advice do you wish that someone had given your younger self that we can give to our listeners and viewers here? I'll quote the late Charlie Munger here, but one of his favorite quotes, uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is, the big money is not made in the entry and exit points, it's made in the waiting. And I think that aligns so well with thematic investing, which is if we identify these structural trends appropriately, it's not about whether the stock is up or, or the ETF is up or down 1% or 2% in a given day. It's really in that concerted effort to be invested and stay invested over the long run that you can really see those outsized gains. That was Jay Jacobs, US Head of Thematic and Active Equity ETFs at iShares by BlackRock. Many thanks to you, Jay. Stay tuned in the app or in your podcast feed for more conversations from this year's Modern Investor Summit. You can find more information at finamize.com. And remember... You can watch this podcast over on our YouTube channel, leave a comment, and tell us more about what you'd like to hear. I'm Carl Haisley from the Finamai Studios. We'll catch you next time.